Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you joining us online, good morning to you also. We are in the gospel according to Mark chapter 13. And can we have a little light up top here? There we go. That had to shine. It's a halo. This begins a chapter of end time studies. For a, at least for me, in teaching on end time studies, it's really challenging because there's so much information. How much do you include? How much do you take out? Try to keep the rhythm going and the intention on the subject and also preach to lives, things that matter right now. So I'm going to start off with two possible titles because I don't know how far I'm going to get. If we get to the end of of, chapter 13, then the title is Hated for Christ. If we don't, then it's going to be something simple like the end's beginning or the beginning of the end. I do want to introduce this subject of persecution that belongs to the end times with two men, uh, Paul and Jeremiah. Their ministries were characterized by persecution. They were persecuted for preaching Christ. Well, Jeremiah for upholding Yahweh and and Paul for preaching Christ. Paul uh, chose his battles. He would say, well, let's go here and let's go there. Jeremiah really had no way out. He was there in Jerusalem and uh, wherever, when he wasn't in Jerusalem, they would find him. Paul could escape his persecutions, but he couldn't escape his persecutions because of his love for Christ. He writes to the Corinthians, he says, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. In that sense, he couldn't choose his battles. He had to preach it. The truth in love laid necessity on Paul, as it did with Jeremiah, And no matter the persecution, they were going to preach, and they did preach, and we have the record of their preaching as an example, as a model, as something to take into great consideration. Jeremiah, at one point, got so frustrated with God, he said, Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name, but his word was in my heart like a burning fire, shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. Woe is me. The necessity is laid upon me. I have to preach the gospel. I have to preach the truth. When they were telling Paul, the Ephesians were telling Paul, don't go to Ephesus, don't go to Jerusalem. If you go to Jerusalem, they're going to arrest you. And if they arrest you, they're likely going to kill you. Don't go. And they began weeping. And Paul responds. He, he answered, Luke tells us, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a very, well, the timing is excellent for us to consider persecution, is it not? A growing persecution. We shouldn't be so surprised at what's happening. It's disappointing. It's it's, it's sometimes, you know, you have to fight the flesh. You don't get angry. Because of lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, but not the love of any. Not the love of those who love Christ, or else we can't get our job done effectively for him. Paul and Jeremiah, they were ready to die anywhere for God. 
And this characterizes the last days. And that is what we're going to look at now. Now, I did not stand, we did not stand and read. It's someone's fault for not pointing that out to me. <laughs> With that introduction, it's never too late to stand and read the Word of God. So would you stand, please, if you have your Bibles. Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. Um, I'm shooting for verse 13, so we're going to read all the way there. Beginning at verse 1, Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceive you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such must happen. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows, but watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for, for a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all nations, but when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak, but whatever is given you in that hour, speak, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now, brother will betray brother to death and father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Please be seated. Well, now you see why I went through this whole thing with the persecution. It would have been nice if I had gotten it up front. Verse 1. Then he went out to the temple. One of his disciples said to him, Teachers, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Well, where it says, then he went out of the temple, it had been a day. A day of teaching, a day of clobbering the religious cartel that ran Jerusalem. He clobbered them over the head with truth, that they, indisputable truths from their own scripture. Were any of them converted? We know the last scribe that confronted, confronted him, Jesus said that he was uh, not far from the kingdom. I do believe there were many that, uh, that were there in those days that will be in heaven. Uh, we know two of them at least, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. It continues in verse 1. One of his disciples said, Teachers, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Buildings is plural. Not just the temple are they speaking of. It was a magnificent complex. If Herodotus, the historian, had been uh, able to see Jerusalem, he would have listed it as one of the wonders of the world, one of the seven wonders of the world as it eventually became known. Uh, it was just incredibly 
impressive. Josephus writes uh, enough about it. I'm not going to read it because it it just takes up too much uh, time. Uh, But when he says buildings here, when they say, do you see these buildings? They are including the structures, the precincts, the colonnaded walkways, the courtyards and the stairways. Uh, there was an a, a entranceway on the southwest wall that was the highest uh, arch bridge at that time in the world to, to get into the city. And that's, we're going to get back to that in a, in a moment. But the most prominent 35 acres in Israel was right here, where, the, where he's leaving the temple, having dealt with those who challenged him and having, having taught those who were eager to hear what he had to say. And so the disciples were very impressed. They were proud of their temple, and understandably so. It had taken 85 years to complete, and it still wasn't finished at the time that uh, this exchange was taking place. The work was ongoing. Six or eight years after it is finally finished, the Romans will completely destroy it. In verse 2, And Jesus answered and said, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. He pounced on their remark. So they're leaving the temple and said, Lord, what do you think of this place? This is, look at these stones. Look at this. It's beautiful. And then he, he doesn't just ignore it or say, Yeah, it is nice. He pounces on that remark, not on them. He's not going after them. He's just going to give them the prophecy, the history that uh, surrounds these things, which has been already fulfilled, incidentally. This is going to be, or as he unfolds it, what we have here, the greatest end-time sermon of all. Uh, Of course, until we get to the Revelation, where it gives us more detail, about the, revel- the, uh, the end time, the great tribulation period. Where would we be if, if these men did not ask him this question? It is known as the Olivet Discourse, because he's going to sit on the Mount of Olives, which is just east, right across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem. You can see the city. It's right there. You can almost reach out and touch it. Today, there's a cemetery that's uh, down in that valley, because the Jews know that the prophet said Messiah is going to come from the east. He's going to come from the Mount of Olives. And They want to be resurrected first. Kind of a messed up theology. There's some truth to it, as all theologies that are messed up are. There's some truth to it, and a lot of wackiness included. So do you see these great buildings? He repeats what they said to him, perhaps gesturing. Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown thrown down. And again, 36 years from this moment, when he says these words... The Romans will ransack Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. They will kill over a million Jews. Demolish the temple. Fulfilling this prophecy. Not one stone that they are now looking at when they asked him is going to be there. Because the Romans, well, Josephus tells us that the facade of the temple, as you entered the temple, had heavy plates of gold on it. And when the sun would rise, since it was facing the east, it would be so bright that from a distance you thought it was a white-capped mountain. And as you got closer, you couldn't stare at it. It was so, the reflection was so intense. And the Romans, when they burned the temple down, 
It was a brutal fight. The Jews fought. Oh, man, it was just a total. Days and days, the legions and the, Roman, the Jews went at it until finally the Romans defeated them. And when they took, uh, burned the building down, they sifted through the rubble and, and whatever stones may still have been on top of each other, and they threw them down too, looking for the gold, the detail, uh, all of it fulfilled. The rubble, after it was sifted, uh, on the southwestern side where that archway is that I mentioned earlier, it's about a hundred foot drop. And you can go there today in Jerusalem and see this as part of the western wall. And uh, there are a, a pile of stones, large stone size of trucks, pickup trucks. Those are the stones that were some of the parts of the temple and the other structures. They just threw them down. It was a, it was a, a marketplace, like a strip mall there. And uh, when the Romans well, raised the city, well, that's where they threw much of the debris. Some of the ru- other rubble and stones went into the Kidron Valley. And so today, again, you go to Israel, you can look at those stones. So those are stones that Jesus saw. They're not part of the foundation. Now, some of the remaining stones are part of the foundation. They weren't visible. He was talking about the visible structure. In Matthew 23, Jesus, uh, lamenting over the city, said, Your house, you see, your house is left to you desolate. And that was prophetic. Uh, spiritually, uh, it was desolate, and then physically it would be. Human beings, of course, have accomplished great things compared to human beings. The temple was one of those. The temple, you'd look at it and say, who else has got something like this? It was remarkable. But only because God has made the resources and the knowledge available. For most of history, there was no, man had not harnessed electricity. It's not very far back before, you know, the, the man was able to harness electricity and have what we have now. But before then, uh, everything was... Uh, run by oil, or the lights were, for example, kerosene lanterns, etc. And you, know, you have to look at that and say, God is the one that released the knowledge. Without him pulling back the veil, men would never have the technology we have now. And aren't we glad? Because the world cannot survive. Man using technology. We're watching. We're watching the planted planet be dismantled with too much wrong information by impenitent, wicked, and uh, humanistic, secularly humanistic people. We put secular on that because uh, we are all human, humanistic in the sense we look out for, we we have this human experience together and, and we don't want to harm others, but secular humanism has blocked God out of that and uh, tends to uh, want to manage humanity according to uh, their own ways, their own knowledge. As the prophet said, it's not in man to govern himself. He, he, can, he cannot do a good job. Well, uh, who is ready to believe that the skyscrapers of the world now, and they're all over the world, I mean, in China, in Southeast Asia, Indonesia, uh, in the Arab world, in the Middle East, skyscrapers are everywhere. These giant cities, they've got these large swimming pools that are way up there. They even have roller coaster amusement rides on them. And like, who is ready to believe 
that the bulk of them, if not all of them, are going to end in rubble. Revelation 18, verse 10, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. I lean more and more to believing that such a verse has not only to deal with the city of Babylon, but the great centers of humanity against God. The point is, if you take this to say this was, it is going to be this tremendous city on earth that God is going to flatten uh, in an hour, whether you take it literally or with the symbols, either way, you end up with the hand of God saying to man, if I don't want it to stand, it won't. And there's a reason why. It's not random. Nothing's random with God. When God executes judgments, he is totally justified, and man is not. And we are hated by God-defying demons and humans for daring to share and to repeat the prophecies and the teachings of Jesus Christ. What I like about this section, when Jesus says, you see these buildings, these large stones, and they were enormous. How they got them in there is incredible. They didn't have a monotonic crane to bring these things in. How they got them in place is incredible. Anyway, when they, say, when he, when they hear him say, they're not going to remain. They don't scoff. They believe him. They just want to know more information. You have to be impressed with that because so often, you know, they would they missed, you know, they weren't the smartest guys around it in the earlier stages. But but they're they're developing. They're, they're they know that he he knows what he's talking about. And so the, today, the any undisturbed stones from this original work are foundational stones. One of them, forty feet by twelve feet by twelve feet. 40 feet long, 12 feet high, 12 feet wide. I mean, what's the tonnage on that? And how did they get it? quarry this thing and, and move it from the quarry to Jerusalem uphill? Uh, it's just quite remarkable, as I've mentioned. And all of this to be in piles. Uh, verse 3 now. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately. So the disciples moved to the Mount of Olives just outside the city, and he's going to turn it into his pulpit. This, here are two sets of brothers. Uh, Peter and, and uh, Andrew are brothers, and John and James are brothers. The other disciples aren't part of the initial conversation, but Matthew gives us more information than, than Mark and Luke as an eyewitness, and you have to believe at some point the others came in. It wasn't that Jesus wouldn't say, get away, this is just for these four guys. Uh, it would expand. So, uh, Zechariah, this, this Mount of Olives that he is now sitting on, uh, Zechariah says that this is going to be the sandals on the ground for Christ when he returns. When he returns with the armies of heaven and will be with him, uh, here's where he is going to touch down. I believe he's going to dispatch us to different places. Maui is where I've already submitted my application. Uh, so uh, only if the restaurants are still operating. 
other than that, it's just kind of, there's beaches everywhere else. Anyway, it's good theology. Lap it up. Verse 5, Zechariah 14.4. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move forward, move toward the north, and half of it toward the south. Uh, so that's going to be uh, quite a dramatic return for everyone. Verse 4 Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? I should pause here to say, if you don't really have an end times perspective and and you're going to be getting one, don't worry about what you're not getting from the first session. We've got several, we've got all the way to the end of this chapter, several weeks of going over the end times. Uh, I would encourage you to try to build a timeline if, if you don't know where things are. Most of what Christ is going to tell them has to do with after the rapture of the church, and for good reason. There was no such thing as the church at this point. The church was not yet birthed. There were synagogues, assembly places, but it was not the churches as we understand it. That will come later, and uh, so will the teachings on that from the Apostle Paul, and we'll get to one in a little bit. But uh, tell us, when will these things be? And you have to applaud that they want to know. They didn't just say, wow, yeah, that's going to be something. But this, as they crossed the Kidron Valley, their wheels were turning. You know, what, what, what is he talking about? This place is going to be wiped out. Um, so they did ask, how could they not? Not one stone left thrown down. Uh, I'm glad, as I said, they asked, and they asked when and what. what when is it going to happen, and what are going to be the signs? That's a good question. Um, these lessons that come from him will come with warnings. Take heed, watch out. And uh, you can't miss it when you read this. If you are one to highlight in your Bible... And especially if you now, with, with tablets and electronic devices, you can highlight very, without making a mess. Uh, you just highlight, take heed, watch. And you, you, you understand the Holy Spirit is saying to you, I am emphasizing this. And he does not waste uh, an emphasis. Verse 5, and Jesus answering them began to say, take heed that no one deceive you. So he begins his lesson on the end time with a warning about being deceived, tricked. The Satan is working. You know, if you have a problem with someone, another Christian particularly, and, uh, you know, you, you can maybe feel resentment coming up, maybe it would help, this has helped me, maybe it will help to recognize that Satan is messing with this situation. That either he is getting the upper hand on the other one, or he's getting it on you, or both. He's certainly trying on both. And when you begin to see it that way, then some of the, the maybe the resentment and the hurt feelings begin to, to, to move down to the bottom. And the spirit gets, gets up over the flesh. Um, why do Christians do some of the stuff they do? Well, Satan is targeting them. 
And now I can look at them and with love and say, you know, they're, they're victims. No matter what they've done to me, uh, it's, it's a, something I, I again, uh, practice and have found it helpful. Otherwise, after years of serving, you can become jaded and, and just, you know, bitter and confused. And, and that's, not, that's not what God wants. Anyway, he begins with a warning that will automatically make them pay attention. Watch out. Take heed. It sounds so, you know, um, academic reading it in the English, take heed. But really, um, if, if I translated it, it would have been something like, you better watch out. <laughs> All right, sleepy morning. Anyway, that no one deceives you. So foremost, again, there it is. Paul will write to the church about the end times, and he says in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, speaking about when Antichrist, there is coming a central figure that unlike all the other people who have been against Jesus Christ, this one's going to be... Uh, uh, just a, an exaggerated figure against Christ. And he will be empowered by Satan, unlike any other human being we've ever heard of. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Well, I like that. Paul is saying, look, before you panic, understand he loses. But before he loses, there are going to be other losers uh, those who side with him. And he continues, Paul does in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. This uh, John, when John sees him in the Revelation, he doesn't call him the lawless one. He says, this guy's a beast. He's a monster. He's, it's not a compliment. You know, we can say that about somebody who may be very strong. Boy, the guy is a beast. Well, that's flattering. This is not. Uh, humans are not supposed to behave as creature, uh, beast animals in the presence of God or humanity. Not like this. And he continues, he says, And with all unrighteous deception. That's how they'll know this is the Antichrist. He'll be doing dirt. He will not be clean like Jesus was. He says, among those who perish, because they, they like it, they're lapping this up, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved, which is a, a, a constant part of our theology to the lost souls today. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe in the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. When, when you, the believer, you commit some act of sin, some act of unrighteousness, your flesh has pleasure in that, but your spirit hates it. That is a distinction between a lost soul, one who is happily lost uh, for now, and, and the one who is saved. And so Paul is saying, when he gets to power, deception is going to characterize his work. And Christ is saying here, don't let anybody deceive you. Now, he's speaking beyond his disciples because they're not going to be alive when these things start to really take place. For some of it, a small part of the persecution they'll be here for, but not for what's really coming. And uh, they've asked for signs, and he's going to give it to them. Now, just recently, well, before I get to that, I think it's important we remember we, we are not obligated to identify with a deceived culture. We don't have to line up with them. 
We do not have to apologize for abstaining from the deception that they are gobbling up. We don't identify with the Christ-hating culture. We stand outside of it, not as better people, but certainly as better off people. And we choose to defy the culture by disagreeing with it. And that's how they take it. Now they're trying, of course, to silence any opposition. You can't even disagree with them. They are determined to force themselves on us and call us rude for not being violated. You just want to say, Lord, can I just have just a few minutes alone with them my way? We can settle this. And, of course, the answer is no, not at all. Anyhow, we are here to offer them God and the love of Christ uh, with truth and love. Don't let that become old to you. Uh, this, uh, we are being persecuted. With this COVID outbreak has come not only, listen, there's a bad uh, virus out there that can kill you. Uh, that part is true. But w- what about all the falsities that came with it? The lies, okay. I expect that from a world that has an agenda. And, and those who have power now, the upper hand... They, they are just, they lie every time they, 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 they talk and they say anything. You can never tell when they're, they're telling the truth. Well, one thing that has been revealed is how easy Bible-believing Christians can be deceived. I, I mean deceived into a, a cave into a panic as the facts begin to come out. They're not letting it go. This church has lost people because we wouldn't mandate mask. And he's just going to say, ah, you know, okay, fine. If you're nervous about it, and you, you know, with a good reason, then, then watch online. But why turn on the pastor? Why turn on the church? Why not give the benefit of the doubt to the righteous? I mean, you're listening to the news media. When have they ever been honest about anything? And for me, in early stages, I thought, well, there's something to this. Well, there was. It is a deadly disease or virus that's out there. But then I saw all the leftists really pushing this. And I said, well, you know what? Any team Satan roots for, I'm against. Anytime Satan gets the ball, now you've got to watch out. And uh, it's just troubling to see that Christians were turning on the church for not sharing the level of fear they had. It's not a reason to turn on your brothers and sisters. So what is my point? My point is this. This was a dress rehearsal for what's coming. It was global. I don't know of any time in human history where the globe was put under a mandate and it was pulled off. Everybody everywhere. I mean, fish were wearing masks. <laughs> and, I mean, Alexander the Great could not do it. The Caesars could not do it. Napoleon could. No one could bring Genghis Khan. None of the people who were conquerors could get the entire world to do what they wanted. Until now. We're in a global age, and that fits into the end time scenario. So beware. Take heed. Don't be gullible. Don't give in so quickly. When you fear, when you see the fear meter in your heart going up, that does not give you the right to collapse, to panic. Fear is fear. It's going to do what it's going to do, and we are we, who we are, and we're going to fight it with faith. 
You can't fault anyone for being afraid. But you can begin to raise an eyebrow when they give in to that fear and logic is gone. That becomes panic. And uh, anyway, I, I hope my, my point in bringing that up is to say, don't think the warnings Jesus is giving about deception is for some far-off group of believers in the future. It's right now. And we should be telling people this. Verse 6, For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. Interesting, he is, he is presupposing his disciples know that the I am he means they're saying they're Messiah. He's admitting he is the Messiah. And all that goes with it from the Old Testament prophets and what he has expounded on. This is particularly for the Jews. <clears throat> Once the church is gone, this is when it's really going to happen for them. And a lot of them will be converted. A lot of them will be slaughtered. The Jews never had a false Messiah until they rejected the true Messiah. It's amazing. All the false messiahs came after Calvary and the resurrection. You'd think that alone would waken them to say, hey, something's spiritual going on here that I'm missing. After Christ, they've had a rash of them. They even had a woman, Eva Frank, claimed to be the Messiah. And some of the Jews in those circles accepted that. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul putting it to the church. Evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. You read where Paul says men will be lovers of themselves, and he goes on to itemize what they're going to be. Well, they've always been this way, but during the end times, the end of the end times is all going to be amplified, uh, greatly so. The apostate churches are false churches. They will increase. That means there will be no gospel coming from churches because the true church will be raptured, taken out of here, and uh, Christians will not be able to form assemblies because they will be killed for their belief. Well, how will they be found? Well, they will now uh, they, you, they can track if you get a vaccination. Well, they're going to be able to track if you get the chip or not. And if you do not have it, you are going to get it, not the chip. Death. Uh, this is promised and elaborated on in, in Revelation. And so when he says, for many will come in my name saying, I am he and will deceive many. This is mainly for the Jews. Uh, the church, of course, it applies. Uh, but uh, we continue verse 7. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled for such things must happen. But the end is not yet. Well, man cannot have lasting peace on earth. He's, he's going to mess it up. Uh, war alone is not a signal that the end of human rule on earth is about to stop. And that's what he's telling them. There's going to be wars. That doesn't mean the end is coming. They ask, when will it be? What is the sign? And he's, he's starting off by saying, well, watch out. And here's some things that's not going to be a sign the end is, is near. You ask, well, with all of these earthquakes and pestilence and the horror that's coming... And what has already been, as a matter of fact, why does God permit this stuff? Well, among other reasons, he's providing believers with an opportunity to act out what we profess. We say that we're going to believe God no matter what, even to the point of death. 
What about to the point of being fired? What about to the point of being divorced? What about to the point of being sick? What about to the point of being betrayed? Are you still going to believe him? If you say, yes, I am, well, you may get a chance to act that out, to prove it. God is not a statistician. He just sits down and says, well, these are the statistics. You know, this game's going to be played. Truth must be expressed. And when we think, when the world thinks about the end of the world, they think about annihilation of the planet. Well, that will get to, God will get to that, but not first. The first phase is the ending of human rule for a thousand years thereabout. And then, uh, not too long after it would seem, then comes the annihilation of the created universe as we know it, and uh, the beginning of a new universe. Uh, planets that um, have not even been formed yet by God. Well, and uh, verse 8, For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginning of sorrows. This is just warming up. All of this stuff is, is our birth, these are birth pangs. I'll get to that in a minute, but such is human history. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Second Timothy chapter 3, know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. That's emphatic. When he says, know this, Timothy, perilous times will come. Still answering the signs. This, this verse 8 is an expansion of Isaiah 19 verse 2. And there in Isaiah 19, it had local application, essentially mainly to Egypt. Here, the Lord picks up the verse and he expands it and gives it end-time significance. And he's saying that was just sort of a you know, dress rehearsal. What's coming is going to match that prophecy in Isaiah that was local, but this one's going to be global. He's going to do the same thing when we get to verse 12 with a verse from Micah. He's going to take a prophecy from Micah that was applicable to the time Micah lived in, the prophet, and he's going to say, just like it was in Micah's day, it's going to be worse in the end. And if we get to verse 12... Uh, we'll, we'll point that out. And there will be earthquakes in various places. So natural occurrences will continue to be natural. Luke adds this. He says, pestilences, fearful sights, and great signs from heaven. That's uh, as you begin to enter deeper into this. And there will be famines and there will be troubles, which are always the outcome of of wars and earthquakes on some level. There are, these are the beginning of sorrows. Uh, not a good start. But sorrows here in the Greek, that word sorrows in the Greek is birth pangs. Sudden uh, pains from the contractions going on that a woman experiences uh, in childbirth. It actually, it actually is signaling that the, the pregnancy phase is ending. That the birth is coming. And, and that is what it is uh, here too. What Jesus means is this is the beginning of sorrows. It's signaling to you that the end is coming. It begins infrequent and it intensifies. Now, I know ladies, uh, I, my understanding is a lot of ladies don't want to hear men talk about pregnancy and birth. Because like, we're, what do we know, right? Well, I, was ha I happened to be there. When, my, when I was born. And, and I was not impressed with what my mother had to go through. So I am a bit of an expert too. There you go. 
I will have someone else start my truck after service because I know you women are that serious about that stuff. <laughs> anyway, um, I don't know where I was. Revelation 6, the signs and how they intensify. After the first uh, seal, when the Antichrist rides on the scene on the white horse as an imposter, and uh, then we read John say, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. So this was something not hidden. That's why it's called the Revelation. Uh, the book of Revelation invites us to, to grapple with it. Uh, no good sermon has been preached without struggle. And, and no good Bible lesson uh, elevates your understanding without hard work. Uh, anyway, another horse, he sees, fiery red went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. All the images in that speak of war. That's what that is. Uh, that is just full-out war that is coming in the days of Antichrist. Verse 8 of Revelation 6, So I looked, and behold, a pale horse... And the name on him who sat on it was death and Hades. And Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beast of the earth. You don't want to be here for this. Uh, this is, these are the beginning of sorrows. Well, here it is now intensifying. The birth, the actual birth of these sorrows is when Christ returns. Uh, that is when it's wrapped up. But it is said that in World War II, 3% of the population was killed because of war. I mean, not, you know, not home, people just dying, natural causes, accidents, whatever. In war, 3% of the population. But here, in Revelation 6, verse 8, God says 25% is going to die just in the earlier stages uh, when the tribulation begins to ramp up. And Christ says these are the beginnings of birth pangs. This is what's going, what's going to have to happen before the delivery of the kingdom of God by the Son to the Father. Verse 9, but watch out for yourselves. There's another warning. Because we need these warnings because we won't watch. We will tend to you know look for... The peace and the happy. In Israel, the Jews today, they're so hungry for peace, they're willing to cut their heads off. And this is a big problem. That, you know, almost peace at any price. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Uh, in fact, I just was reading an article in, in going over my notes on the temple and all the stones there, that uh, they're covering up the evidences of the temple and other things that, are, that we... we crave almost as Bible students just to keep peace. They're willing to, to make lies and just anything for peace. And this is this has caused them unnecessary pain many times. Um, and anyway, I, other stories, but we need to try to move on here. Where are we? Verse 9. Watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake for a testimony to them. Rapidly a deteriorating situation. Uh, 
this, this has some direct application to their lives after Christ ascended to heaven. The, the partial fulfillments of this, that comes with prophecy. Not all prophecy has one fulfillment. Many of them have phases and uh, initial fulfillments. This, uh, of course, the globally deceived culture will not watch out for God. They will deny him and they will be, uh, get violent against those who remind them of Jesus Christ. He says, for they will deliver you up to councils. Uh, the forces of law will be used against the disciples, as it was with Daniel and as it was with Daniel's uh, colleagues. Councils here is Sanhedrin in the Greek. Uh, there, were, there was the great Sanhedrin of 70 men that ran Jerusalem and the nation, and then there were lesser Sanhedrins, lesser councils throughout the land that were local authorities. Um, the politics are designed to dig up something on someone that can be used against them in court or in public or in the family to... Uh, destroy them, and that's what's going to happen to the church. It's happening now. And you will be beaten in the synagogues. Nice. Well, that happened to Paul for sure. Uh, the intensity uh, ramping up. The uh, two faithful churches in the book of Revelation, when the seven churches are called out, Smyrna and Philadelphia were the only two that were not rebuked. Smyrna suffered. Philadelphia taught the word of God. And to both of those churches, and only to both of those churches, Jesus said, I know where the church of Satan is. I know where the synagogue of Satan. It happened to be Jewish because at that time, that's who was giving them the problem. But of course, it went beyond the Jews that were opposed to their Messiah. It includes anyone who targets the church for destruction. And uh, it's an interesting thought. We think of the church of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. Well, God says, well, there's also a synagogue of Satan. There's also his assembly. And it has to do with religion, and it has to do with violence against those who are mine. He says here in verse 10, You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake for a testimony to them, giving a preaching chance giving those who are listening to them a chance to receive the gospel. I don't think it's going to be entirely wasted. I don't think that Paul, Paul got before Caesar, because God said he's going to get there, and he preached, and Caesar went cuckoo after that. I mean, not that Caesar Nero is the one. And, but, but what about those in the court? There were those of, his, of Nero's house that did convert, and, and so it was not wasted entirely. Verse 10, And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Well, all people are sinners except Jesus Christ, and they need to hear the gospel. This is global. The Christianity has struggled to do this because of opposition. And in the dark ages, it was almost completely stopped, silenced. But for a remnant, the two witnesses will show up in the end times. They will convert 144,000 Jews who will preach the gospel and great multitudes of Gentiles and Jews will be converted. And it will, um, again, without the church, there'll be no church. That's how people will get converted, by uh, direct witness and leftover materials. You know how many people are going to be listening to my sermons? <laughs> so, anyway. Uh, verse 11. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, we're almost done. Do not worry, 
Not, not we're almost done, do not worry. But it's part of the text. So it's, but when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. So when they arrest you and deliver you up, that generation will know that these prophecies are being fulfilled, but it still applies to all ages of the faith. The Lord does not expect his martyrs to be fear-stricken. That's what he is saying. When they arrest you and deliver you up, they hate you, they're going to kill you. But I do not expect you to be fear-stricken. I pray that if I am persecuted to the death or worse, to torture, in this life, I hope I make a good martyr. Uh, That is my approach. You start getting my head around that. He says, don't premeditate because God will minister. He will be present. He will be active and he will be ready in the Holy Spirit. He says, but whatever is given to you in that hour, speak. That is the unburied gospel. What a phrase. Some of us need to be reminded the gospel is not to be buried. Speak that for it is not you who speak. Uh, It is God uh, that's speaking through you. Verse 12 Now brother will betray brother to death and father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And nothing about that is attractive, but it is a fact and you can't sweep it under the rug. Here is where he is quoting Micah 6. In Micah's day, the Assyrian army was coming into the northern kingdom. And when that happened, Micah prophesied, you know, because of your decadence and your unrighteousness, you're going to turn on each other. And you're going to turn on each other to save your own skin. And that is what happened. And Christ takes it now, and he says, not only is that human nature in sin, but it's going to be carried out in the last days. It is constant. Uh, It is not just for the days of Micah, but he is... Always going to the scripture, the Lord is to drive home his points. Brother will betray brother to death uh, for, for the faith, for, for opposing the faith. And again, this is, well, we saw it with the Civil War, and, and that was not as directly linked as this is to scripture. Um, this, these things are not the intense hatred for Christ rising up and cause them to be put to death. Islam, militant, blatant homosexuality, hedonism, uh, secular humanism. They're already leading the way for this to happen. They've looked at the church's responses to their violations, and they're saying, you know what? We've got to stop these people. That's what they're saying about us. We've got to put an end to them protesting and resisting us. And uh, they will get away with it. Uh, in in life. Verse 13, we've arrived. If you can just hang in there a few minutes, the ushers will hand out money to... In, in, to <laughs> no, no, they won't. They're the opposite of a prosperity church, the, the poor church. We hand out money. and All right, maybe I should end this. Verse 13, and you will be hated by, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Hate is an opposite of peace. Hated because men love themselves, they love their views, and they're not interested in being told what to do by God or God's people. Uh, They will um, 
2 Timothy again, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, bolsters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, and the list goes on, and all of those amplified. And to those who take a stand for God, when Antichrist is here, you can expect no mercy. Uh, that's where we're headed. You know, already Christians are getting mercy in the courts. I just read the Supreme Court won't take a case on the florist up in Seattle uh, because she wouldn't make a bouquet for these people. A little bunch of crybaby little, yeah, she won't make flowers for me. Go get your own flowers. <laughs> little tulip. Anyway, I mean, it's just, they're weasels. They are. But they're increasing in their deadliness and intolerance. And we shouldn't be surprised. We should be active. Uh, Jesus said, take heed, don't be deceived, and don't be fear-driven. Temptation to abandon Christ to save your own skin has been real down through the ages. And, uh, well, I'm out of time to read all these verses I have. But let's finish up the little we have. He says here in verse 12, or where are we? Verse 13. By all, for my name's sake, everyone will gang up on Christians. Uh, Jesus taught that persecution of believers would be common, it would be severe, and uh, nothing about that should surprise us. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Uh, this is, again, important because if you love peace for your own self more than you love the Lord, you're going to be an apostate if you are around when this takes place. Uh, true believers will endure, make believers will not. This does not mean perseverance earns your salvation. It means it demonstrates you are saved. And uh, that is a critical point. Well, I close with this verse. John 4.22 True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. And the rest of the Bible rings in and says, even to the death. Even to the death, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for giving us the courage that comes along with the warnings if we walk in the spirit. We thank you that we can see that so many of your prophecies have already been fulfilled they are a testimony to your trustworthiness that when you speak, you mean it, and we should not doubt it. And many, many have not come to you, and many have. And if you are listening or here in the church or watching online, and you've not opened your heart to Christ, you have an opportunity right now to give your life to Jesus. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner, I've broken your laws, and I repent. I ask you to forgive me. I come to you and you alone because no one else is good enough and great enough to die for me in my place and take the judgment for my sin away. And I ask that you would be my Savior and my Lord from this day forward. I give my life to you. And now, Father, we commit any confessions uh, to receive your Son. We commit it into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.